Coming up on this week's episode of Check Your Balances, we unpack some pitfalls of love and money. Stick around. That's coming up next. Check Your Balances is a show produced and owned by Craftwork Capital. The views expressed by the hosts and their guests are personal opinions and should not be considered personal financial advice or the opinion of Craftwork Capital. All investments have risk and may lose money. Consult with your financial advisor, tax preparer, or attorney prior to implementing anything discussed, and please do not use this show as the sole basis for financial decisions. Welcome back to another week of Check Your Balances. I am Ross Anderson, joined as always by my friend and co-host Dan Maseka. Dan, good to see you and happy Valentine's Day. Good to see you. Happy Valentine's Day to you. I feel like we're in a relationship of sorts that's lasted many years. You are. Yeah, no, this is uh, quite a bromance, right? It I mean, is. I, honestly, I spend more time with you than maybe anybody else in my life. So um, <laughs> I, I do think that there's something meaningful between us, Dan, and I get to stare in your eyes every week as we record this show to find that out again. I cherish every minute of it. <laughs> Exciting stuff. And today we are talking about love and money. We've touched on this in a couple different ways in our show in the past, but I do think that relationships and how they affect your finances is so important. So we had a few fun things that we wanted to get into. Dan, let's start with you. Tell me about your almost gift that happened to you. I think this is a couple years ago. Yeah, it was. So one of the most interesting things I think about love and money in relationships is how people have such different personalities when it comes to spending money. And anecdotally, we were looking at an article just before we hit record. And there seems to be evidence that opposites attract in that arena as well, that spenders tend to get with savers. I don't know how that works or whether that's true, but I find it believable. We'll we'll do some more digging. It certainly Um, doesn't sound wrong to me. I just don't know if there's enough evidence, right? Is that something that's broadly tracked enough that we could even come up with data on it? I have no idea. I don't know how externally you would know to be attracted to a saver or spender if you were the opposite, but maybe they're, maybe they're keys that clue you in. Anywho, so, so a few years ago, it was my birthday and my wife had a surprise for me and she said, all right, block some time off. I'm driving you somewhere. I was like, this is exciting. This is very different. None of my birthdays have started that way in the past. So me, my wife, my daughter get in the car and she's driving. Where do you think you're going, by the way? Do you have any any hints at this point of what you think is coming? No hints. I wasn't told to dress any certain way. May you know, I love going to concerts, but my daughter's there. I'm not sure we're going to a concert with the three of us. Um maybe an activity of some sorts, or maybe to see my family. I have no idea. I do know that the direction we're driving is towards where my family lives. So that's all I knew. At the end of this journey, we pull up at a car dealership. Now, now I have questions, right? I'm like, what on earth are we doing here? Um, and then she shows me this really beautiful, decked out Ford F-150 Platinum and asks if I like it. I'm like, well, sure do. It's a very nice, very nice truck. I've always wanted a truck. I drive a pretty old Toyota Camry. And she tells me that that is what she wants to give me for my birthday. All the papers are ready. We have been pre-approved and she was going to sign, but figured she'd show it to me first, just in case it wasn't what I was going for. Uh, It was a very expensive truck. At that moment, is it panic? What, What comes across your face in the moment finding out this is the gift? So much panic, so much panic. Not only is it expensive, it's like the peak of the car market when inflation was running rampant over there. 
you know, we don't have, I wasn't very excited about taking on another six year liability, which is probably what we were signing up for. And I didn't want to offend her because I was very appreciative that she had that thought to, to share something with me that she thought would make me happy. But at the same time, like, I don't, I don't want this. Like, I don't want this to be a thing in my life at the moment. I think you and I think about entrepreneurship in a similar way that especially when you're going into a, a period of unknown cash flow, that you try to reduce exposure, right? You're not taking on additional payments. You're not taking on additional overhead. The ability to suppress some of that is part of what allows an entrepreneur to take a little bit of risk and, and maybe put their own income at risk for a while. And this is like early in the days of our company at this point, right? I think this was year one. And and my wife and I are both entrepreneurs. You know, our cash flow is very unpredictable as a household. So I think we've worked very hard to reduce fixed expenses to the extent that we can. And I, I think that truck would have been like not much less than a third of our mortgage if we had to finance it, which we would have. We would have had to finance that thing. They pre-approved her on her own merit. They they were ready to give it to her and let her drive her drive it off the lot. But thank God she decided to bring me to it instead. I'm very grateful that she loves me enough to have gone through that process uh, and also very grateful that she let me have a veto before it was finalized. How did you successfully talk that down, right? Like did that did that day end in like a difficult conversation or was it kind of like were you able to unwind that without causing any any real stress? The most difficult conversation was with the salesperson at the at the at the car lot. I mean, they were they thought they had a sale done. Like I don't think they thought there was any chance that we were walking away without that truck. Uh my wife was pretty chill about it. I think ultimately she doesn't want me to be stressed. So when she saw that it was causing me a panic, you know, she wanted me to do whatever made me the happiest and I was conflicted because on the one hand, I certainly would have loved that truck. Um but knew that wasn't the right decision for us at the time. Yeah. When we started thinking about this, I, I thought back to a buddy of mine, and I'll strip as many of the personal details out of this as possible, but early on, he was dating uh, somebody that he's now married to, and they had a very big income differential, I think, uh, with respect to like multiples, right? So I, I think he was kind of in a, in a fairly modest earning job, and she was making a bunch of money. And early on in their dating career, the suggestions for like, what are we going to do with our weekend started becoming apparent that they were just like really far apart where he was thinking like, Oh, we'll go on like a hike. And she was thinking like, Oh, we'll fly to Indonesia for the weekend. And just like a meaningful gap in terms of like what their resources would allow them to do and forced that money conversation very early in a dating career. While I think that with most folks, they actually try and hold those cards a little bit closer to their chest and maybe share that later as things are getting serious but at least a kind of coming to an agreement on what can we do with our resources and what can I contribute on a you know weekend getaway sort of thing that had to come up very very early and that was just like one of the first things I thought about when when love and money can't, comes to mind. Yeah, I respect them for having that conversation early on. I'm sure it set them up for a much brighter future. As you indicated, they're married now, so I think they resolved those issues. There's no question. And I think that communication is going to come down to being uh, the linchpin on all of this stuff, right? That's really the key on all of these love and money issues that we're going to get into in just a moment here is making sure that you're communicating clearly and openly and about what your actual goals are. 
because if they come up later and they haven't been discussed, it can put things in a really, really difficult situation. And so the first one that I wanted to really unpack that I think is a challenge, particularly for couples in like a second marriage or somebody that has kids from a prior marriage and now they're in a new relationship, is how they actually think about their estate. And I've seen this a bunch of different times in a few different variations, but essentially what I've I've noticed happens is in the second marriage or the second kind of romantic relationship or third or whatever number it is, but when there's kids from a prior life, the parent wants to really prioritize those kids with the estate. And a lot of financial planning assumes when you're looking at a husband and wife or a partnership that the resources of both in the couple are available even at the death of the first partner. And that is a really, really important assumption that needs to be tested. Because if you've got one partner that is intending to leave their estate to their kids and not to the new partner, that completely changes the planning dynamic. Totally. So what's happening most times is you might consider carving out a portion of your estate to support your partner to make sure that they're going to have the ability to maintain their lifestyle but you want to pass on the majority of that to your children if you have them. This can go beyond even planning at at death and has implications even during your lifetime and retirement spending. We were talking through a plan recently where we were thinking about, all right, well, which assets are we spending during retirement if we're thinking about an estate for the for the next generation? Yeah, and if you're the spouse that is maybe not going to get the bulk of that estate that you were expecting to, I think it adds some tension to where the money is going to come from during your living years, right? It, and then it, because if you're spending down your own money with the expectation that your spouse is going to leave you an IRA or a, an account, whatever it happens to be, you could find yourself really draining through your resources and ultimately counting on something that's not going to be there. So there's a couple different ways to handle that. I think insurance is one of them for somebody that is still insurable either creating insurance for the spouse so that the partner can live on and has enough resources. That means doing the calculation on how much would they need at death just to stay comfortable and maybe creating that as the insurance need or vice versa. You could do the insurance for the kids. You could say, Hey, we're going to make sure that there's something there for the, the children that are wanting to be kind of taking care of them and allow the spouse to inherit whatever is left of the assets. But one or the other is most often going to be needed if you were otherwise planning on both of those spouses living on that same pooled set of resources. Yeah, oftentimes when we talk about insurance, I feel like it gets a really bad rap because it's oversold a lot and permanent life is very expensive to buy and yeah, very And lucrative. we rip on it constantly on our show, Dan. I mean, yeah, we're, we're part of that problem. We are part of the problem. but, But... As Ross explained, there is a clear case for permanent insurance in some instances. So, you know, when we're talking about making sure you're insurable at that point, you know, if you're thinking about your estate planning after, you know, second or third marriage, odds are you're not super young anymore. But having the option to get permanent insurance can be critical. And for that reason, you know, when we're looking at term or when you're looking at term insurance early on, I often recommend making sure you have conversion privileges in that policy, which will let you turn that into a permanent insurance policy down the road. So it's like buying an option on your life insurance purchase in the future. 
I think that's probably the most misunderstood thing. When people go to these insurance marketplaces, things like Policy Genius and, and other kind of term life insurance marketplaces, and you run a quote and you go, okay, well, if I needed half a million bucks of insurance for 20 years, what's the cheapest price? There's always a question there of what are you giving up, right? Because in insurance, there's basically only three things. There's the cost, there's the benefit, and then there's the language. That's the third part. And that's what's so specific is what does that policy allow or not allow you to do for any additional dollars of premium, right? So a convertible policy basically means throughout the term that it's convertible, you can, you can just go into whatever the permanent life policy is without going through the underwriting process, without having to go through your health exams and see if you're still insurable. That is such a critical benefit and just you know, we talk a lot about flexibility, but in my mind, that's almost the ultimate flexibility when it comes from insurance. I would love a low cost term life policy as long as I can convert it. That tends to be a sweet spot. Yeah. So if you're shopping for term, that's a question worth asking. Some policies are convertible for their entire term. Some aren't convertible at all, and some are convertible for only a period. So it's worth knowing what you're buying because it does make a difference down the road. So the issues that we've just talked about a little bit really come out of some of the inequity in terms of these relationships, right? So when you've got earners that are making a very different amount of money, Dan, how do you normally see that handled in terms of dealing with household expenses? And what, what do you think the most equitable way to handle expenses are when you've got a real big disparity, either between somebody earning 100% of the income up to just you know otherwise large gaps? Yeah, I've seen this done in a number of ways. Typically, what I see is whoever's earning the majority of the income is the most involved in their financial planning. Um, but it works best when you both have a seat at the table and both have the ability to influence the direction your plan is going. Um, thinking of it more in terms of like a business b board of directors, you both have a seat on the board, you both have an equal vote um, because you're both running the household to some extent. So, you know, some people have arrangements where you're both paying a certain number of expenses, depending on what they are to your ability. I mean, style, your personal financial style is important here. But I think what often works best is a combined pool, assuming you're all bought in on that notion. Yeah, I tend to see things when it's um, income amounts that are maybe not equal, people will basically contribute at a percentage. Uh, that is kind of equalized to the income, right? So if one partner is making 75% of the income, they will cover 75% of the expenses. The other will contribute the 25% into some sort of a joint or pooled account so that those purchases can be made. I've seen that done a lot. You know, I, I tend to think when it's a stay-at-home spouse that we've got like 100% of income being earned on one side, one of the important things is to create that freedom so that there is a whether you call it a slush fund or a, you know, don't worry about it fund or like whatever it is that you create some flexibility because nobody wants to feel like they're sitting at home with zero ability to spend any money, right? That's, that's just a very restrictive thing. Or if you feel like you have to ask permission for any amount of purchase, that's a very, very tough place to be. Almost certainly going to lead to a bad outcome. I've seen couples do the you know, decide on a dollar amount where if it's X number of dollars or more, then we're going to discuss the purchase. Otherwise, it can be made freely and without kind of prior approval of the board, so to speak. So I've definitely seen a few different things there. But I think what's most helpful is understanding where those guardrails are and 
just intentionally creating some of that flexibility so that nobody's feeling completely restricted. Maybe it doesn't need to be said, but anytime you're introducing guilt into the relationship in the form of, well, I earned the money, so blah, 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 and trying to infuse power through that money dynamic, I think that's a very, very negative place to be. Certainly not a therapist, but that's not where you want to be in in a relationship. But I think that open communication is really key there. Yeah. And oftentimes I relay household finance to running a business. I don't know what that says about me, but that's how I think about it. So we talked about the board of directors as far as making big picture money choices. Uh, I know with our business too, like you said, giving people a certain amount of wiggle room to make purchases when they need to is, is the way we operate at the brewery at least. So each of our managers over there can buy what they need to up until a certain dollar amount and they don't need to ask the general manager or me. But if it goes beyond a threshold, they need Dan's approval because he's going to write that check at the end of the day. And so they ask me. But it allows them to do what they need to do without causing delays in their business. And they don't need to justify every small thing because they know better than I do about their personal lives in, in their workplace. Um, but at a certain point, it's meaningful and we need we need to approve it. Dan coming in with the big rubber stamp to approve or disapprove of any big expenses. I like that. That's kind of how we run videos. this business too. Yeah, I think it works really well because you know you feel the autonomy, the freedom, um, but ultimately we have a responsibility to each other, Ross, because we are in a relationship. That is true. All right, the final one that came up for me, I think, is interesting, and I think it comes up very frequently, which is how to think about college expenses. And my general framework here is that people tend to be really influenced by how their own college experience was handled. Sometimes that's in a very positive light. Sometimes that's in a very negative light. A positive might be, my parents were able to help me through school. I'm very grateful for that experience. It helped. I came out debt-free, and now I'm in this great position. That's kind of one take on it. The same situation being taken negatively could have been, hey, my parents paid for my college. I didn't take it seriously because I didn't have any skin in the game. And so I screwed around for four years or didn't get my degree or whatever and just didn't appreciate the opportunity. You've got the same treatment from the parents creating a very different outcome for the student. I think vice versa, you can see that on folks that have taken student loans or worked their way through college. They can find that to be very positive or very engaging or they can find it very burdensome and they come out with lots and lots of debt. So I think that tends to be one of the areas that's a little bit tougher for parents to sometimes come to consensus on what are we going to do for our kids when it comes to education planning. It's also such a big ticket item. Like it's a meaningful decision whether you're going to pay for your child's college or private school. Like that can minimize almost anything else happening in your life while you're paying for it. So it, it's a significant decision. And uh, yeah, I've seen it go both ways for people too. Just, you know, I went to private school. My parents paid for my college. I'm very fortunate in that regard. I tend to look back and think just how much of a burden it must have been to cover those costs while I was in school and what that could have meant had that money gone anywhere else except into my education. And then I'm often reminded that, you know, I had a lot of great opportunities as a result. So I keep straddling both sides of that that wall, so to speak. But, uh, you know, I think it's important to understand that your history will shape your mindset and attitude about how you treat that going forward in your life. Right. And, and then when you're adding that and you're layering that you've got a partner that has perhaps the identical experience or perhaps the opposite experience in terms of how they're viewing 
some of those same support mechanisms. So I think that that's a very challenging thing to come together on, especially if those experiences were very different. Yeah. And, and open conversation, always the key. Part of the benefit of having a financial planner or even going through financial planning exercises on your own is it gives you a format to discuss that stuff and bring it up. So if you're doing your own financial plans, having a checklist or a guide that you pull off the internet or something can hopefully lead you into those conversations early on. So you're not facing it for the first time when you get, you know, the cost of a school that you were looking at and then suddenly have to figure out what you're going to do. You know what I think I've seen come up a lot more in education planning is really a decision to fund a certain amount is, hey, I'm going to put together X number of dollars for my kid. And if they use it for school, if they use it for a down payment, like I don't really care, but this is my contribution, which I think is a little bit easier. Certainly from a math point, it's easier, right? It's easier on us in terms of doing the calculation because trying to predict what inflation will be in education tuition rates over the next 20 years Again, I, I've stated I think that that's probably going to slow in terms of the inflation rate on that education simply because we've got less children trying to go to school in the next 20 years than we did in the last 20. That being said, it's a very difficult thing to pinpoint to get exactly right. You know, you're planning for a three-year-old. How do you figure out if they're going to private school or public school or how much that that cost is going to inflate? It's a very, very challenging set of kind of math problems there. Ultimately, the math isn't that hard, but I think coming to the assumptions is is really difficult. Where just coming to a number isn't. If you say, "Hey, look, I'm going to contribute twenty five grand a year. We're going to set aside a hundred thousand dollars. Wherever that gets them, good luck." Yeah, I like that because I can plan my life around that. So if I know what my end goal is, I can work towards that over a period of eighteen years or however long it's going to be. Uh, and then as long as I know I'm doing that, I don't have a moving target that I need to hit. I know I funded it to whatever the amount I said was, and the other money can go to support my retirement goals or my lifestyle goals. You know what I think the challenge is if you do it that way, though? I think it's actually saying no or setting that limit when you get there, right? If you're going to do it as a set dollar amount, I think ultimately bringing the the student or the child into that communication cycle at some age that is before the day you go to college becomes really, really important, right? As a teenager, it has to become, hey, this is what's going to be available for you. These will be your other options. I think that brings an extra component of needing to communicate into the layer of the relationship. Definitely. Especially, you know, as you're prepping for your college exams or anything like that, that's something you want to start communicating. Um, Because the the rising college student is very much an active participant in that process. And and may choose to tackle it differently. I mean, I'm seeing so many more kids go to two years of community college and then try and transfer those credits to the four-year university to graduate, right? Those might be strategies that are much more interesting if you know that you're going to have to be on the hook for some portion of the payment or if you understand only how far the money goes type of thing. Planning for college is so difficult. You're, you're trained to do it right away. And it it pays to do it right away. But you don't even know where you're going to live in a few years. And that can be such a big driver of what the cost of school is and whether you ultimately choose to go to a public or private school, either for college or before college. Planning's tough. Planning is is hard. It's an imperfect thing. It's a craft that we continue to work on. And uh, I think that's what makes it exciting, quite frankly, is that it's a moving target and that no day is the same. Yeah, it's part of the fun part is it's like you're constantly solving word problems. And I used to love word problems as a kid. 
I know that that might be strange, but it was one of my favorite things. And I always feel like financial plans are like extended word problems. I agree. Well, we'd love to hear from our listeners on this. What money conversations have you had? Were they successful? Have you run into challenges? Where have you gotten stuck with your partner or your relationships? We'd love to hear any complete success stories or, quite frankly, blow-ups that would be entertaining if you are willing (laughs) to share them. Check your balances at Outlook.com is the email address for our show. We hope you're having a wonderful week. We'll see you next time. Love you. Love you.